opening words this morning are a poem by Ruth Feldman called Detour. I took a long time getting here, much of it wasted on wrong turns, back roads riddled by ruts. I had adventures. I never would have known if I proceeded as the crow flies. Superhighways are so sure of where they are going, they arrive too soon. A straight line isn't always the shortest distance between two people. Sometimes I act as though I'm heading somewhere else while imperceptibly I narrow the gap between you and me. I'm not sure I'll ever know the right way, but I don't mind getting lost now and then. Maps don't know everything. I invite you now to join our musicians in singing our opening song this morning. Welcome to the Washington Ethical Society. I am Amanda Poppy. My pronouns are she, her, and hers, and I am honored to serve as the clergy leader here. I am so glad that you are joining us this morning. Visitors and guests, we hope that you got a blue name tag so that we can welcome you and answer any questions that you might have. We do enjoy talking about what we have found here in this community, but we are really eager to hear what it is that you are looking for. We hope that you'll join us after our platform service for coffee and cookies, and I think I still see some bagels available in the lobby and social hall. And we hope that you'll consider sharing your email with us on the gold sheet that you find in your program. You can drop that in the collection basket when it passes later in our platform service. I do want to remind you to silence your electronic devices this morning, anything that beeps. While they're out, feel free to check in on social media, let folks know that you're here. 
And now I'd like to invite Peter Kent to come forward and share our statement of purpose. Peter is a member of our stewardship team, and as our members know from the hopefully not barrage, but gentle flowing stream of emails and reminders, we are in our annual um, operating budget drive uh, season. So Peter's actually going to start, I think, by sharing a little bit about how Wes fuels his journey, and, uh, and then he'll share our statement of purpose with us. So, how does Wes fuel my journey? Well, Wes gives me inspiration, support, grounding, and I guess most important in these trying times, a much-needed antidote for hopelessness and despair. The institution of Wes and each one of you help me remember, and I need a lot of reminders, that a better, more just, caring, and joyful world is really possible, and that I can play a role in helping bring that into being. So, the statement of purpose. The Washington Ethical Society is a humanistic congregation that affirms the worth of every person. We strive through our relationships to elicit the best in the human spirit. With faith in human goodness, we appreciate each person's unique capacities. We joyfully celebrate together and support each other through life. We nurture a sense of reverence and responsibility for each other and the earth. We invite you to join our community of children and adults as we work for a world where love and justice cross all borders. Thank you so much. Oh, but Peter, we still need you to light the candle. Oh. <laughs> You've done so beautifully. <laughs> as Peter lights our candle, I invite you to join in our candle lighting words. May we kindle within us the warmth of compassion, the light of understanding, and the fire of commitment to build a brighter future for all. Thank you indeed, Peter. For really that inspiration this morning, I always love it when I get to be inspired on Sunday morning. Thank you. Each week, we ring a chime in solidarity with people around the world. Today, I am particularly mindful of folks who um, are in danger or have lost lives um, because of extreme weather throughout the globe. People in Africa, particularly in Mozambique, um, the kind of center of a recent cyclone, and uh, people in the Midwest of America where they have been experiencing significant flooding. I also hold in my heart the family of Antoine Rose, the latest in a long line of uh, black men killed by police who um, have not received indictments. 
As we listen to the chime, let us remember our connection to each other and to the world around us. Let us hold in our hearts all that hurts in the world. And let us commit ourselves to all that calls for our work and our love. I want to invite you now to settle even more deeply into meditation. Make yourself comfortable in your seat. Adjust your body. Close your eyes if you'd like or soften your gaze. Take a breath in and let it out. Try another of those breathing in, filling your lungs, and breathing out as you let go. As you continue to breathe deeply and normally, I invite you to imagine a thread thread that connects yourself with another, perhaps the person seated right next to you, a thread connecting yourselves. Imagine now another thread that connects them with someone else in this room, and you with that new person. Hold in your mind's eye an image of these threads connecting each one of us to the other, sometimes pulled taut, sometimes loose and full of slack, a web of threads tangled, straight lines and curves, pulling each one of us imperceptibly toward the other. As we continue in silence, I invite you to hold that image in your mind and in your heart, the threads that connect us, one and all.
have lost Broken rivers I have crossed I have made it through the flames And like a diamond I've been shaped A thousand times again now I can love deeper I want to love harder So love like you've never been hurt Cause love can change the world Now let's go higher Together we're stronger So love like you've never been hurt Cause love can change the world I've seen the first become the last Heroes rising out of ash Ooh. And after everywhere I've been I know the journey the wind and I wouldn't change a thing now I can love deeper I want to love harder so love like you've never been hurt cause love can change the world now let's go Together we're stronger So love like you've never been hurt Cause love can change the world Cause when we go deep That's when it gets real That's when you feel real the woman you see to be the person I am I want to feel real love I want to feel real love cause when we go
I think that's what they call it, mic drop, Nicole. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. It is, as always, a joy to have you here. It is a joy to have David playing with you here. And Jason and Tom, we are really um, lucky with our musicians this morning. Thank you so much. It is also a joy to have with us four um, clergy and clergy in training and clergy in formation and emerging beautiful folks with us this morning. Um, and they're going to tell you a little bit of their stories. So I want to just tell you, kind of locate them for you institutionally. Um, all four of these folks are here because of the Humanist Clergy and Organizer Collaboratory, which Wes is really proud to be hosting tomorrow and Tuesday. And we have some other folks as well with us here, and I want to just honor and recognize them. Ethical Culture Leader Joy McConnell is with us this morning, as well as, well as Carolyn Tabak, who is, um, a, was a member of West, moved out to Colorado, and is now in the leadership training program. And Carolyn, we're so excited to have you with us. And many of you know and love Jay Hooper. Jay is also within leadership training and has been with us and brought his beauty to us. So I'm so excited. Did I miss anybody? Are there like sneaky leaders here? No, okay. Um, so, um, so I just am so honored and I'm really glad that I'm not speaking because that makes me nervous. So good luck, y'all. Um, we have with us today three folks who are part of the organizing team for the Clergy Collaboratory. That's the first three sitting here. And then Jim, who's just my friend. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and so I want to make sure that you know Christian Hayden, who has spoken here before and many of you know and love. Christian is in leadership training. He comes out of the Philadelphia Ethical Society. We're delighted to have you back. Lika, no, just hold because we're going to, I know, we're delighted about all of them. Um, <laughs> Lika Lewis Cornwell is um, the ministerial intern at the Unitarian Universalist Congregation in Annapolis, Maryland. And she's actually just joined the board of the Unitarian Universalist Humanist Association, which I am lucky to serve as president of. Patrice Curtis is the minister of the Unitarian Universalists of Clearwater, Florida. Um, Patrice and I know each other from when she served here in All Souls in DC. Um, and so it's so such a joy to have her here. And then Jim Fodi is the associate minister at the First Unitarian Society of Minneapolis, which is sort of the flagship humanist congregation within Unitarian Universalism. So all four of them are humanists and are humanists in their own and different ways. And that's part of what I'm so excited you get to hear today. So without further ado, here you go. Okay. Thanks. So I am a humanist minister serving a humanist congregation, but that is actually more about serendipity than about any sort of plan. Never in my life did I know that there was a thing called humanism that I could have put into my Google Maps to become a destination for my career. Rather, throughout my life, I've encountered pieces of a puzzle that when all put together, make up the humanist outlook that I have today. It all started with my parents. Doesn't everything start with your parents? My parents came from large, loving, Catholic extended families. So that's the tradition and the theology that I was born into. Three of the four Catholic parishes in my hometown had 100-year-old steeples pointing toward heaven. I went to the fourth one, which did not have a steeple and had a much more modern outlook. 
That congregation was founded on the cusp of the 1960s by a social justice-loving priest. There were no kneelers, there were no rosaries, there were plenty of guitars and plenty of questions. In my family, it was no problem to attend Mass on Sunday morning and then watch the original Cosmos Science series on Sunday evening. Both ways of knowing and ways of finding meaning were celebrated. And critical thinking about science or religion was the norm. We addressed complex issues at home and in my church youth group. Questions were always welcomed. Well, almost always. There was that one time when my family and I were visiting a Catholic church perched majestically on a hilltop. Inside the sanctuary along a wall were crutches and canes that people had left behind because they purportedly had been cured by miracles. Today, I can see how that plays right into the narrative of heaping blame on disabled people. If only they had more faith. And back then, my snarky teenage self, self asked some questions that my mom did not appreciate. My skepticism was a sign of the loose threads that would lead to the unraveling of the comforting blanket of Christianity that I had been wrapped in since birth. In my first year of college, after attending Ash Wednesday service, I gave up Catholicism for Lent. <laughs> I didn't actually end up going back, but I've stayed very close to my family despite this change in religion. I think some people sometimes assume that I left Christianity because I'm gay, but back then, Catholic homophobia was less malignant than it is now. My departure was more about being unable to reconcile reality as I experienced it with reality as it was being presented and interpreted. I wasn't particularly angry. My congregational experiences had been filled with connection and love, but I, I couldn't stay. After college, I attended a pretty cool UU church. The critical thinking of Unitarianism combined with the universalist tradition of love for all people was, it was a good fit. When I moved to Minneapolis in my mid-20s, I tried another UU church, but I didn't make the same kinds of connections, and I eventually drifted away. In 2002, when I wasn't part of any congregation, my travels took me to Cambodia, and what I saw there evaporated whatever was left of my theism. The poverty, the poverty and the human misery, the still exploding landmines that evidenced humanity's most evil side disfigured toddlers begging in dirt streets. Even if God were simply a force of love in the universe, it seemed a perversely selective love, and I saw no evidence of an afterlife to balance things out. For me, it was the end of a theological chapter. We do not believe what we want to believe, the Reverend Raymond Bragg once said. We believe what we must. Bragg, who served the same congregation I serve in Minneapolis back in the 1930s and 40s, was one of the authors of the Humanist Manifesto, the first one. And once I found my way back to Unitarian Universalism and answered the call to seminary, Bragg's words, as well as those of John Dietrich and John Dewey, Anthony Penn and James Baldwin, all helped me find my way toward, helped me find my way toward calling myself a humanist. As I've said many times, it took me a while to figure out that I was a humanist because I'm capable of good cheer. <laughs> many of the loudest atheists, humanists, and non-believers don't lack for brilliance, but there's a wide streak of hostility 
usually white hetero male hostility, that apparently makes for better book deals. This approach to non-theism strikes me as groundbreaking only in the sense that it leaves broken ground, scorched earth, for the less antagonistic, more pluralistic-minded non-believers among us to walk upon. Now, of course, there's plenty to be angry about in terms of religion's impact, and rage can be a useful force for progress. But here's a question I'm forever asking. Do you want to express your feelings, or do you want to bring about change? Because the tactics are rarely the same. So I've signed up for what the Reverend Ed Harris called for, what he called for nearly three decades ago, a joyful humanism. A humanism that affirms humans versus a negation-focused atheism. A humanism that is self-critical about its pitfalls, particularly the favoring of a certain economic class of whiteness and also the near idolatry of the three C's of humanism, critique, conflict, and conferences. <laughs> I, of course, love a good conference. That's why I'm here. <laughs> but if those are your three main approaches, don't be surprised if, if your movement stays tiny. I think there's a fourth C that still has great potential to broaden humanism's appeal, congregations. So in my small role in my small corner of the world, I continue to try to work for an expansive humanism not bound by class and cultural strictures, an embodied humanism that acknowledges the fullness of human existence beyond the life of the mind, a justice-oriented humanism that puts human flourishing first and decenters whiteness, and a humanism that rejects a hierarchy of living things and sees humans as one part of the complex and beautiful machinery of naturally existing reality. And because I'm a humanist, I know there's only one way to bring about that world, the work of human hands. May we make it so. I too would like to tell you a story the story of how seminary helped me lose my belief and find my faith. See, I also grew up in Christianity. I grew up in evangelical Christianity. And I was taught that you followed the rules that God had given you, and then eventually you came to love him. And I used the gendered language intentionally because that's the only God I was ever taught to know. I'm a rules person, so that worked well for me. I was like, okay, I'll follow the rules, and then I'll, we'll connect somehow. And I followed the rules, and I followed the rules, and I followed the rules, and I never connected. But I figured, well, you know, I'm, I'm not in a very progressive form of Christianity, and so that's, that's probably all it is. I'm a progressive Christian. So I thought that through most of you know, my early adulthood and headed, headed off to seminary, and I thought, okay, I'm going to find my people now, the progressive Christians. So I got to seminary, and I listened. And I heard the love, and I heard the connection, and I heard the experience as my fellow seminarians spoke about Jesus, it was beautiful. 
and not at all what I felt in my own heart. So now I was up a creek without a paddle. I'd been counting all along that I was a progressive Christian. So I had to start over again. I spoke with one of my mentors, a dear professor of mine, and she said, have you ever checked out humanism? I said, well, I remember hearing a sermon about humanism when I was young. That's where you believe you're a god, right? <laughs> and she said, well, you might want to do a little bit of reading on that one. I said, okay, well, the one thing I know is that I'm definitely not an atheist because I believe in awe and mystery and wonder, so I can't be an atheist. And she said, well, you might want to do a little reading on that one. So I did some reading, and I finally did find my people. And I had a conversation with a, with a classmate at one point, and she said, so if you don't have a sacred text, then where do you find meaning in life? And I thought back to something that I discovered when I started out on this journey of rebuilding my faith. And I told her, everywhere. Because I went back to the stories, the stories that make meaning. I realized that all along, I had been feeling what they were feeling. When I looked up at the night sky, and I considered the connections of our universe. When I looked deep into the eyes of a friend or a loved one, a fellow worker for justice, and I felt the connection, that's where I found holiness. And I thought back to another journey that another person took, a fictional person. Some of you may have seen the movie The Matrix, which is one of my favorites. And in that movie, the protagonist, Neo, he goes on his own quest. And in that quest, he goes to visit the Oracle to try to figure out what's next, what's ahead. And while he's in the waiting room, he sees a child with a spoon, just looking at the spoon. And as the child looks at the spoon, the spoon begins to bend. And in his conversation with his own mentor, he hears something that I find so profound for our journey as humanists alongside our fellow theistic workers for justice. There is no spoon. We talk a lot about the humanist theist gap. And I think that's the wrong question. The question of how we bridge that gap is the wrong question. Because I think in the end, there is no spoon. We look at the world differently, yes. We find meaning and beauty and wonder and sacredness in different places, yes. 
But we have each experienced that moment of being brought to our knees by magnificence. In the eyes of a child, in the connections that we make, in the world that we are building together. On Christmas Eve 1968, astronauts orbiting the moon saw the Earth rising for the first time. And regardless of what you believe, whether like my classmates, you find power in Jesus, or if like me, like probably many of you, a personified deity might not resonate, but you believe deeply in our responsibility to save each other and make the world right. Whichever you are, somewhere in between, somewhere to the side, moments like that first earth rise are the mysteries that can connect us all. My name is Christian Hayden, and I go by he, him pronouns. And I'm from the Philadelphia Ethical Society. I'm a leader in training. I don't usually talk about my childhood a lot, but joining, uh, becoming a leader in training made me think back to a time when I was younger that I said I wanted to be a, an actor, a politician, and a preacher. Some of my cynical friends would have said there's something that connects those uh, <laughs> professions, but I digress. But I remember being uh, watching my, my Baptist pastor and his charisma and his ability to uh, move the crowd, thinking I wanted to be in that position. And then as I grew older, I somewhat lost that desire to be in that position of power, uh, to, to think that idea of leadership did not, I didn't find as appealing. Who was I to stand in front of folks like you and say, what is the truth? And so as I, and, 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 and during that sort of, as I grew out of that and I grew into teenagers, be a teenager and into adolescence and I, um, my religion became, became making mistakes. Uh, and, but, but in that, there was a searching that was going on. I, I really tried to answer certain questions. What did it mean? To, who was I? Who was I meant to be? What did it mean to be black? What did it mean to be a man? And so these were questions that, were, that I struggled answering as I grew from uh, as I went through high school and college. But then when I met Hugh Taft Morales, who's a member here and a mentor and a, a, uh, the, the leader of the Philadelphia Ethical Society, and I came to realize that those questions uh, sort of maybe placed me in a sort of existential ter territory, where maybe I was more of an existentialist than I realized, that was before I realized I was a humanist, but that that was a spiritual endeavor. And before I get in trouble here, when I say spiritual, I mean <laughs> that 
it's, <laughs> it's a grounding, something grounding, weighty, and some possibility of connecting over. And that, along with just seeing, becoming, starting, oh, here's where I'll also get into trouble, starting to see where ethical culture might be a faith because of the, thing it, the things it reaches for. I was offered for the first time in my life something that invited me to change it. Ethical culture is defined by the people who are a part of it. And then I realized what it asks of me, of us, who it asks for us to be in the world every day, is difficult. You ever try to have an ethical relationship with somebody? That's reciprocal, filled with honesty and accountability, right? You ever try to realize and appreciate and celebrate your inherent worth? Like really, own it? You ever try to channel the energy daily to confront the systems of oppressions you've inherited, you suffer from, or you benefit from? Or both? All. Those are things that are difficult enough for me to think of this as a faith. And so in these clergy, sorry, that was, I was a self-plug, sorry. But, um, <laughs> but then, and then, so when I come back to this, what does it mean to be a leader? And that the, that questioning and searching can be a form of ministry. These are the things we all need to do. These are the things we're all suffering with, no matter where we come from. And that my ministry in particular could be creating these spaces where, I don't know if you've, uh, so if you've had some of those uh, platforms where things get a little mushy and people are talking to each other during, it might be my fault. So for the Mazda project, I was trying to figure out ways that we could build community um, by sort of learning from each other and, and sharing with each other and how that can be as, as important or weighty as you know, learning about the environment or you know, the other things that folks come up here and talk about on Sundays. Um, and so, like, for instance, I would ask you all to take a moment if you, uh, you know, maybe invite you to close your eyes or look you know, with the unattached gaze somewhere and you say out loud something you value. So one word, what's something you value? You could say it out loud, just don't worry. I'm inviting, I'm breaking down a wall. Friends, joy, connection, love, right? Work, well yeah. Nature, becoming. Now can I, can I ask you to do the same thing and ask what you struggle with? Self-acceptance. Discipline. I just added a second one, sorry. Thank you. You actually, I gotta give y'all credit for the 11 o'clock. Y'all were a lot more willing to share what you struggled with. I just wanna say that, no, no, right? But um, one of the, so and as I wrap up, I just really quickly want to share, like what my, my idea, um, of being a leader was sort of influenced by a friend of mine that said, 
Jewish friend, he said, a rabbi's job is to help create other rabbis. And I think of my job, or what I hope to be able to do in the future, is, to, is a leader who helps create other leaders. Someone who provides experiences, tools, and framing so that other folks can realize their best selves and then in turn do it for other people. Thank you. Good morning. I'm Reverend Patrice. I'm so glad to be with you this morning. So I'm going to, uh, you know when you get to a certain age and you don't want to recount every step of your life. So I'm going to zip through part of those. I see some nods out there. Um, so in the beginning, when I was two or three, I questioned the idea of Jesus Christ. I wish I could remember what was being said. I had to ask my mother about how old she thought I was because it is one of my earliest memories of someone saying something, probably Sunday school teacher. I do remember that. It was a Sunday school teacher. Her saying something, and me looking at a painting of Jesus and going, I don't think so. That feeling is so strong in me from such a young age. And I was also born a very spiritual person. I have always been in touch with my spirituality. And before I get in trouble, I'm not sure if Christian spoke to the same person from the 9.30 or not, but <laughs> spirituality for me means, uh, is a feeling. <laughs> Amanda is shaking her head, yes. We love our people, all of them. What I mean by spirituality is those times when I feel deeply connected to everything, to you, to nature, to the cosmos, it is when I am most feeling what reality really is, as opposed to what society says we are, which is separate beings who go through this world as individualistic. So that's what I mean by spirituality. So I was born very much in touch with my spirituality. So when I was a kid and youth, I tried to make Christianity work because I wanted to be connected to other people who seem to be exploring their spirituality. And like Jim, well, I, I should, the college days, so I discovered meditation, and then I discovered Zen Buddhism, and I practiced that, but I hadn't given up the idea that I might still find a place in Christianity. Then like Jim, I had an experience overseas. I was working in a refugee camp, and that experience profoundly changed what I thought my faith could be. And at that point, I gave up Christianity, and I began exploration for something else. So for a while, I was a Zen Buddhist, and then I stopped practicing all of the tenets of Zen Buddhism. And though I still sit, and that is still my spiritual practice, I went beyond Buddhism and started creating my own theology, one that was based very much in science, the joy of quantum physics, which I was discovering then, 
uh, what it meant to, to be an open-hearted and loving person fully. And then I was driving down the street one day in Berkeley, and I passed a sign on the side of a church. And I did a double take. And I wish I had taken a picture of that sign, because I don't remember what it said, but I do remember I went <laughs> directly home and looked up this thing called Unitarian Universalism, which I had never heard of before, and invited my spouse to go to church with me on Sunday. And that was it. I had discovered a place where I could be fully who I was, where I could bring my intellect and my heart together, where I did not need to believe in God to be a fully spiritual person, struggling to be in connection with others. So why is it important to belong to a community? Why is it important to be, for me, a Unitarian Universalist, for you to be an ethical society? I think it's useful for us to think about that because sometimes we think that we can be, especially if we are not believing in some higher power that we are accountable to, that we forget that if we choose to be humanists, we are accountable to each other. In a way, perhaps, that is deeper than many faiths. Because if there is no God to which we can say, can you bring comfort to the people. The comfort must come from us. And as Christian said, that is not an easy task. To walk through the world, to not walk past, but to walk with the person on the metro, to walk with the person who's on the corner asking for a dime, to walk with the person who does not look like you and to battle our own minds, our own brains, which tell us anyone who does not look like us is dangerous, is a deep path in which you must have people who are holding you accountable for that. Being in community also forces me to listen to ideas that I might otherwise put aside, perhaps someone who does believe in God, challenges me in my own faith. And I need to be strong enough to know that I can incorporate new ideas into who I am. And in fact, we do that all the time with science. So why can we be afraid of new spiritual ideas? It is a way to build a wall that we don't need. So incorporating new ideas. Heaven on earth. Does anyone believe that we could, as a species, create heaven on earth? I believe that. We must believe that. Otherwise, why are we here? It is not about going through life. It is about going through life so that we can create a better life. And if there is no God, and there are no angels, then the angels are us. And to take that into our hearts and to live fully that way is so painful. And yet can bring us such joy. 
as a person who has been told countless times in my life that I am not worthy, that I am not equal because of the way I look. Whenever you need strength, put yourself into someone's shoes like that. Or use the experience that you have had as a woman who has been told the same thing, or as a man who is shorter, or who is fill in the blank. That is a place to draw strength and to know that you can stand for others who are experiencing something like that as well. Being in community reminds us that we are interconnected. All the breath that we took during meditation is all the breath there is on this planet. We are responsible for each other. We are responsible for the creepy crawlies, for the swimmers, for the flyers. We are responsible for the trees. This is our life. And as a humanist, this is our life, right? This is it. Live it, love it, and don't waste it. Namaste. It's the joy.
Mensagem de vida no teu coração 